Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's the Wonky Show. We're back after the Christmas break and Adeem Zahawi is telling us there are no excuses for online learning. Is he right? Uh, there's also exhortations from ministers on improving attainment in schools, UCU's new report on harassment, and we're trying to work out what's going on with the NSS. It's all coming up. I feel like if this intervention is to be successful, then we need university ministers to comprehensively grasp like the holistic structural ways in which retention and attainment is impacted. And I just think, wouldn't it be wonderful if alongside statements like this, they approach things like decolonisation with curiosity instead of sort of knee-jerk condemnation. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here with pork pies and cans of Carlsberg for our work meeting, three fabulous guests. Uh, in Bushy Park, Sean Waring is Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of Northampton. Sean, your highlight of the week, please. Oh, morning. Um, definitely being on The Wonky Show. <laughs> that is the correct answer. And in York, Ben Volume is Chief Exec at York University Student Union. Ben, your highlight of the week? Uh, it's undoubtedly getting today's wordle in just three attempts. <laughs> it is, it is, it is the sensation, isn't it? And in Exeter, Sunday Blake is associate editor at Wonky. Sunday, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, my highlight of the week is after a long period of illness, I am back at the gym, which makes me very happy. Ah, oh, excellent news. So yes, we start this week with return to campus. Just before we broke up for the break, the Omicron variant of COVID-19 began its exponential rise, and that's had some implications for our return, Sean. Yes, thanks. Um, so this is the 2nd January, where the return to study has been complicated by the uncertainty and anxiety about COVID. It's only the 2nd January, it might feel like longer than that. Um, so this year, we're returning for face-to-face delivery, and the government has uh, reminded us of how important that is. And we've been hearing a lot on the news about schools struggling to stay open due to staff sickness and isolation. So universities are scenario planning for a potentially similar situation while taking measures to limit virus transmission on campus. Um, And to cap that, uh, the next few weeks are going to be used for assessment in many universities, which always brings practical and logistical challenges, questions about fairness, parity and standards um, in any year, but but um, amplified by COVID. And once again, we're adapting at pace. Um, and uh, UCU is um, doing their job, being concerned about protecting staff adequately, including sick pay for hourly paid lecturers and other staff. So it's it's all happening, Jim. It's all going on. It's all going on. Another kind of chaotic month. Ben, there's um, there's lots of kind of interesting debates here, aren't there? There's the there's the sort of culture wars, COVID debate about safety versus freedom that has kind of not gone away since day one of the pandemic. But there's also lots of these interesting questions about what happens when you've got so many people that are mildly ill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, do you know, I was I, was, I read something this week where it said that there's been oh in Britain there have been over two hundred individual rule changes over the last two years associated with the pandemic. Now, that, that's that's a lot of fluidity. Um, that's very, very hard to build any routine. And, and if we think about, you know, when when my new baby was born, how many years ago, I was told it's all about the feeding routine and the sleeping routine. When I went to university myself, I was told it's all about the study routine. Routines are important. They bring kind of stability to us. 
they help us to organize our lives and to attain and to make friends and to be comfortable and, and they're good for our mental health and so on and so on. And it's impossible to have a routine because everything is constantly changing. Now, I, I, I sense that students have reached a point where they're saying, we're now ready to try and, I suppose, build some compromise into our lifestyles in order to have a routine that is workable. We don't necessarily want to go back. We don't, we don't have some expectation that pan, the pandemic's going to end overnight and we can all go back to exactly how it used to be back in the good old days. But we do sense, you know, actually, if I can get a test on a regular basis, that might allow me to continue working face to face. If I can get vaccinated once, twice and a booster, that might allow me to carry on. So that, that there's these new routines that are forming that are allowing life. One other brief thing, it's a little bit tangential. I mean, it really struck me this week that I know that universities across the country during previous lockdowns received a very significant number of complaints from local residents in cities and, and city neighbours about students having garden parties and beers and barbecues in the garden. Now, I really hope the universities are writing back to those complainants right now to refer them to Cressida Dick and Sue Gray, because what we can see is that the standards and the norms have changed. And, you know, it, we, we ran our first pilot for a, a COVID passport event uh, earlier this week. And genuinely, as, as we asked people to show a passport on the door, a number of the people attending that event were saying, well, Boris wouldn't have to. And, and, you know, the bar has been set and it's not been set in the right place. And that's a real, that's that's a challenge for us as we try to find these new routines that are safe and, and secure and uh, reliable it is, is that unfortunately the routines being set by some of our esteemed leaders aren't quite right. Uh, yeah. Sunday, this thing about uh, Nadim Zahavi saying there are no excuses for universities not to deliver face-to-face learning. Is that is that fair? Uh, you know, are there, are there any excuses? So, like, one, one of the interesting things about this wave of COVID is that... Um, there's lots of reassurances that it's not as severe unless, of course, you're, um, you have pre-existing conditions, which in which case it is. So we shouldn't dismiss those individuals. Um, but I've, I often respond to that thinking like, well, I don't want to be sick at all. That causes such like a disruption in, in my schedule. It causes such a disruption into my work routine. And when you've got masses of people going off sick at once, that is, a massive inconvenience it's not so I feel like this kind of focus on like oh well it's not as deadly it's not as severe well yeah okay it's not but like you still have these massive groups of students and massive groups of already overstretched um teaching staff going off sick meaning that their colleagues are having to pick up more work um meaning that students aren't maybe getting the teaching that they think or that they expect to get meaning there's gonna be more problems down the line yeah i mean sean sunday's right isn't she there's this kind of strange unfolding chaos about the the, the with layers of implications on implications you know you, you turn up on campus and you realize there aren't quite enough staff to open the 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 the, the cafe bar which means you can't have a lot and, and so on and so on you know it's suddenly you know post rooms not open. four people have told me this week that post rooms aren't open around the, the sector mm. this is chaos isn't it i think you're right that it's a it's a balance between what Ben was saying about, you know, trying to get those routines back in place um, and, you know, that those forces of chaos pushing in on it. What I can say is that um, at Northampton, we can see that our control measures are, are working. Transmission um, is still relatively low on campus. Um, it's higher with Omicron than it's been with the previous variants, but it's still relatively low. And it's almost entirely associated with um, social activity, not teaching or student support activity. Um, so we know that the transmission controls are are largely working. Um, and I think we've got a lot of the other measures that UCU are asking for in place already. Um, we do pay our associate lecturers and other hourly paid staff um, sick pay. Um, and I think the only uh, 
area that we, we're really not meeting what you see we're asking for is is the provision of the FFP3 masks. Um, but I think we are we are trying to balance the needs of the different groups. We're we're remaining in consultation and um, really tr- trying to manage those uh, forces of chaos you've just described. Mm. Ben, uh, you, you know you've got to, you've got to speculate, haven't you, that there's a press conference this afternoon on COVID that we may well, by the time this podcast goes out, have a sense of uh, at least a, a kind of draft date for when all restrictions will come off. Where, where, what's your sense of where students are at in terms of, you know, groups that are very still worried about COVID and groups that really are not? As I say, I, th- I think students are finding points of compromise. Some of those are quite individual. So, so for one student, it might be about only coming onto campus twice a week rather than five times a week, and for, for others. It might be something different. I mean, you, you, the, the example of the post room being shut is certainly not exclusive to a higher education setting. I know in the village where I live, everyone's been moaning that they don't seem to have had any posts since Christmas. You know, and, yeah. and do, do you know what? They can just about survive. This is the it. second year in a row that my yeah, yeah, Christmas exactly. Radio Times has come yeah. after Christmas. <laughs> so, so they can just about live with it. I, I know I've bought a, a, a new coffee press so that I don't have to rely on the, 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 the latter getting a latte from the cafe next door, right? So, so we make small adjustments so that we can have some sense of routine that allows us to work effectively or study effectively or whatever it might be. And I agree. I mean, the, the, the risk in all of that is that if we rely on it too much, it is arguably, you know, the, the, the people who are already struggling to participate in, in university life and attain at the highest levels are perhaps the ones who have to make the greatest compromise. And, and that's the risk for us, that if we don't monitor the routines, the new routines that are forming, it may be that the bulk of the adjustment is done by the most vulnerable. The routines are interesting, aren't they, Sunday? So, you know, lot, one of the things I keep seeing on, and, and it's understandable, I think, when Nadim Zahawi says there are no excuses for online learning. You know, that, well, I keep seeing people kind of defend the idea of an online lecture being more flexible and helpful and so on. But one of the things that lectures do is they create routines that get you out the house. <laughs> and, you know, I kind of worry, I think, about the idea that post-pandemic we'll have lots of much more flexible stuff. But in a way, it becomes so flexible that, unless you're kind of good at doing that thing where you set yourself a routine of you know going onto campus and meeting people but you right. just you, do, you, have, you have this kind of liminal yeah <laughs> you know n- no no routine at all yeah I mean it's really interesting actually because this touches upon a little bit of um, research that I've been doing on inclusion and belonging um, with um, students writing diary entries and um, most of them say that like the most integration that they get with their cohort is in structured and organized events like lectures or like extracurricular events so um, one quote that always uh, sticks out to me from the diary entries is a student who said that uh, he's an international student and he went to in-person English classes to improve his English and he said that my English didn't improve at all but at least I made lots of friends um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which <laughs> which is you know it's funny but also you know it really it really does speak to that um, that need for human contact especially if you're in a completely different country um, and you've just arrived so um, yeah a lot of work a lot of work to be done uh, in this area and really understanding the social impact that this has had. And, and we and we look forward to uh, both the conclusion of the Student Futures Commission and also the secret life of students, which we'll be discussing lots of these issues uh, in February. Pop along to the website to work out how you can join us in person in February to discuss that and lots of other issues. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. My name is Andy Yule. And this week, I have written about the OFS consultation on data futures. Well, 
More precisely, I've written about the issues that the consultation doesn't raise. In September 2020, Michelle Donnellan asked OFS to review the burden of data collections and specifically considered requirements for the student data that will be collected three times per year under the Data Futures model. OFS have taken a long look at this issue and are consulting on a proposed model of reducing the collection timetable to twice per year. That's all well and good, and it will have a marginal impact on the burden of student data collections. But those providers that offer higher-level apprenticeships are returning individualised student data to the ESFA 14 times per year. So a reduction in the data future timetable from three to two collections doesn't really represent much of a win. This duplication in data collections represents a colossal burden on the sector, and that's before we even consider the data transactions necessary to support the student loan system or the potential complexity of the planned lifelong learning entitlement. Hello, my name is Dr Iwi Ugyabi-Green. I'm a reader at Manchester Metropolitan University and my piece for Wonky this week is a shout out to the sector to centre empathy, kindness and compassion in all that we do and not just during the ongoing turbulence of the pandemic but as a collective and universal approach to all things assessment learning and teaching. I highlight the African concept of Ubuntu as a notion of personhood and a person as a social being who is always becoming. Ubuntu is an affirmation of our humanity. I am because we are and it's through recognition of the uniqueness of others that we become. Centering humanity and celebrating nurturing the uniqueness of students is critical to supporting their journey of becoming. This is what we do on Aspire, a UKRI Research England funded project that aims to celebrate, showcase the strengths and capabilities of black and black mixed heritage people. We adopt compassionate pedagogy to disrupt the deficit narrative that follows us. We help our scholars on the programme navigate systems that usually disadvantage people racialised as black so that they can achieve their personal best. We're not the same, but I am because we are. Let's centre humanity in all our learning journeys of becoming. Now, meanwhile this week, there's a new Director for Fair Access and Participation at the Office for Students, and the old one has been spilling the beans. What did he have to say, Sean? Well, this is um, Chris Millwood, who was Director of Fair Access and Participation at the Office for Students for four years. Um, And as you say, he's just written a report, and I've got a big cheer for this report and a massive gripe as well. Um, so my, my Here we go. Yeah. I, should, I should find some sound effects yeah, for this. Brace, brace yourselves. Um, there was a bit of shouting when I was reading this last night. Um, so my cheer is that his overall vision for the value and future of higher education is um, really positive and really inspiring. He talks about ongoing expansion and the importance of um, not um, having kind of binary concept of, of higher education as academic or technical, but, but it being um, a, a kind of thriving, flourishing culture of academic, technical, professional and creative. Um, I thought he expressed that really well. Um, it was, it, it, well, it was really exciting to read. My complaint is, okay, um, how dismissive he was of the role of what he calls lower entry tariff universities um, and the work that they've done on access, success and employment. First of all, he sounded like 
um, he and his colleagues were the first people who thought about widening participation and success. Um, my, my first degree was at Oxford and my first job was um, at what was Roehampton Institute then. And I was bowled over by the value added um, we made to students' lives. And this was, well, I can't tell you how long ago it was, obviously, because that's completely confidential information. But it was a very long time ago. And, um, you know, y- universities in, in that lower tariff bands, as they're called, are making massive contributions to um, LSBU, I think, just won an award for, for having the most of its students, its graduates going on to be chief um, executive officers. Um, like a massive contribution. And so this is my challenge for the panel, because we're looking at causation and correlation, aren't we? So how would you rate this statement? Um, the most disadvantaged students study disproportionately in those universities with lower retention rates. Now, hold on. <laughs> I, I was, I was. I've got, I'm, I've got one of those animated gifts of a dog chasing its tail yeah, in my. Uh, yeah, the most disadvantaged <laughs> students study disproportionately in those students with lower retention rates, and mm. I I'm, couldn't kind of get past that. Actually, I was, I was really stu- struck at the, um, at, at the reversal of the cause and effect. Um, implied in that statement. Now, to accompany the uh, publication of this paper, uh, Chris Millwood uh, was on a CGHE um, webinar. Uh, let's have a clip. So universities make really important contributions to schools, and I say this in the paper that we've published this afternoon. I'm sitting in a university that that, that runs a school um, and runs teacher training and does a huge amount of research and evaluation that uh, on, on, on what happens in schools. Um, but ultimately... Um, what happens in relation to the attainment gap, and it's the attainment gap that has driven a lot of the inequalities in relation to access over the last decade, will be due to the efforts and the investment in schools rather than universities. So I think it's important to encourage universities like this one to do some of the great work they're doing with schools, but not assume that they can ultimately be held to account for that or that they're going to save the day in relation to uh, the attainment gap. And, and again, one of the things I say in the paper today is um, the guidance from the government recognises and, and suggests there have been changes to standards in schools over the last decade, but it doesn't recognise the failure to reduce the attainment gap. So, and that, that's going to be really crucial during the coming years. If not, then you have to look at what are the routes into higher education. Um, for young people, contextual admissions in that system where there's such inequalities are, in my view, a robust assessment of potential. Um, if, if you use a nuanced basket of measures, you can start to understand the distance travelled and potential to succeed. Um, that's important to be fair to the individuals, in my view. Um, it's crucial to making any progress on access, which all governments have said they want to do over the last few years. And then Vicky has written much more intelligent work than I have about issues like like justice in relation to this and, and, and fairness. Um, so, you know, as I looked back on some of the history of, of where this whole agenda has evolved from, I, I noticed, so January 2010, a report was published that was commissioned by the then Secretary of State for Business, Innovation and Skills, uh, Pat McFadden, uh, a Labour MP for, for Wolverhampton. And the report was titled Unleashing Aspiration. And, and I, I suppose I'm, you know, I'm wondering if if we if Michelle Donnellan and Nazim Zawi were commissioning the same report now would it be titled leashing aspiration because what we, we do seem to there's been this giant shift in attitudes towards social mobility and fair chances for all and and that somehow you know there's this sense that that, that you know it's it, it, creating opportunities for those who have the least is not going to deliver the outcomes that that somebody else 
needs. And I have to say, you know, I, I see successive generations of elected student officers and representatives and course reps and so on. So they are passionate about social mobility. They want to learn at universities that, that have diversity and you know, different people coming from different backgrounds. And it's really, really sad that there seems to be a gap between the aspiration of our students and the aspiration of our government. Mm. Although, I don't know, Sunday, Ben says that, right? I, I, you know, if, there's a limit, isn't there? Because, you know, surely... I mean, I, I think when you say to students, do you know what, some of your fee money goes on, you know, bursaries and scholarships or whatever for other students, I think that's just about all right for most of them. But once you start saying to students, oh, by the way, your tuition fees are funding schools improvement, don't you snap the sort of kind of basic, <laughs> you know, I accept that I have to pay fees on some level. Doesn't that, you know, doesn't that go too far? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess that there's always a question. This is a question that was posed like a lot when I was an officer is like how much responsibility do universities have like how far back in the system do they go um which I don't have the answer to I'm afraid this is really really interesting um because I was reading some research this week by Dr Louise Taylor from Oxford Brooks on student attainment um which suggests that gaps uh, particularly from BME students, are more complex than previously considered. So she basically uses this theory called like self-determination theory, which uses empirical evidence to show that feelings of relatedness, so being connected to others, competence, feeling capable and confident, and autonomy, feeling that you can be your authentic self in your environment, impact students' motivation levels, which obviously then impact attainment and success. So it's not just a case of applying yourself. These are like fun like fundamental psychological needs which if they're not met have a direct impact on the individual um and she basically concluded this by saying that to improve relatedness um BME students need support for reporting racism and we need to get role models into university using race equality charters um that students are given opportunities to explore their own identities within the curriculum so they're not just studying like western white colonized version of history or literature for example um so basically this is like empirical evidence evidence that um, suggests that internationalising, diversifying and decolonising the curriculum has an impact on retainment and attainment, which is great. But members of the government and Michelle herself have publicly spoken out against decolonisation efforts in universities. So I feel like if this intervention is to be successful, then we need university ministers to comprehensively grasp like the holistic structural ways in which retention and attainment is impacted. And I just think, wouldn't it be wonderful if alongside statements like this, they approach things like decolonisation with curiosity instead of sort of knee-jerk condemnation? But, I mean, Sean, I mean, this goes to the heart of it, doesn't it? You know, isn't a lot of this really about do you change the university to kind of meet the diverse needs of students or do you change students to meet the kind of um, eternal standards and high standards and excellence of universities? They're, they're, this is It's a proper tussle, this, isn't it? It is a proper tussle. It's, a, it's an incredibly complex problem. Um, there are different factors at play in different parts of the country. You know, we've discussed that before in terms of employment patterns. It's incredibly political about, you know, do, uh, you know, there are local universities in areas where, you know, MPs get lobbied about, um, obviously, the preservation of, of higher education in those regions. It's a financial conundrum, um, as you, you know, you've illustrated about who, who funds what and actually the overall burden of that cost. And it's definitely a site of contested values. Um, I think I come back to really what the universities are, are here to do in terms of our work with um, educating people, um, making 
transforming individuals' lives, contributing to society. Obviously, we want to work with um, schools and FE to do that. And we have to find ways to do that in a way which is, um, you know, doesn't overtax, as you, you said, staff who are already working incredibly hard. But actually, it, so it actually has to tie in with our mission um, and help us to do the things that we're doing. And, and of course, part of that is contributing to our region um, and to other educational endeavours. I, th- I think the point about um, contributing expertise and also having students volunteering in schools, that's a, that's that's win-win. Um, actually, really interesting point. Um, a lot of, there's an increasing number of children who are off-rolled in schools and that's increased through the pandemic. They haven't gone back to school. And Northamptonshire actually has the, unfortunately, the highest number of this in the country of, of, of children who have kind of vanished um, and they're, they're not going back to school and many of them will be in, in harm's way. Um, they won't be getting an education they need um, and they're potentially at risk. Um, so that the more that um, university students can make an, an offer and, and volunteer in ways that actually picks up children who are most at risk in society. I think that's part of the university mission. It's part of employability skills for students and it, it contributes to regions flourishing, which I think is part of the mission of universities. Yeah, I mean, it's a good, it's a good point, Sean. And, and Ben, just before we kind of, kind of, kind of finish on this, it, it relates to that thing that um, Lee Elliott Major was talking about just before Christmas, the idea that students might, you know, kind of national, you know, there might be a national push on students volunteering to do tutoring work. Where's the line between um, kind of harnessing the enthusiasm of students that have their spare time and are committed to social justice and so on, and kind of using the unpaid labour of students to fix society's problems. Oh, uh, well, that's a that's a long-standing debate. I mean, I, I, I guess choice would would be the first thing that you know. If I feel I'm obliged to do something, then it you know it becomes a job. If if I'm choosing to give something back to to extend the ladder that I benefited from climbing to others, that you know that that may be a personal choice and, and you know certainly this whole you know Charlie explained really well you know some, the role of some students to, 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 to go into the schools our sabbatical officers love being asked to go and speak in local colleges and schools they absolutely love it um, our students are proud of the fact that at York we have one of the highest proportion of care leavers um, of any UK university you know they celebrate it and they choose to volunteer their time you know working with those communities and sharing the message on Twitter and you know, whatever else it might be um, that they, they, they fundraise money to, to, to give out Christmas hampers and to host Christmas parties for these people. You know, like, I just, I don't see that there's a tension there between students and, you know, widening our participation. I think there's an appetite for it. They want to, if necessary, volunteer their time. Great. Now, as you would expect, we've been keeping a close eye on the ARIA bill and DK has an update. Ah, what to say about ARIA? That's not just a gentle conversational instruction, mind you. That's the central issue now facing government following the ARIA bill completing all of the major scrutiny phases in Parliament. The only non-government amendment the bill picked up during this time makes some very sensible stipulations allowing ARIA to seek equity interest in funded projects and to keep intellectual property in the UK for up to 10 years. There's nothing in there that's likely to spark any interest in ping-pong. But in passing a largely unamended bill, the government presents itself with another problem. The new agency will have £50 million to spend before the end of March, while currently having no chair, no chief executive and no staff. That £50 million is the first chunk of an astonishing £800 million in the next three or so years, with the promise of more to follow. As Aria's raison d'etre is to fund the projects that are too speculative for UKRI industry or universities to risk money on, it will become a very difficult recurring ask from the Treasury, especially as what is likely to become a series of very constrained spending rounds. 
So for me, the key appointment will not be the chair or the chief exec. It will be the head of communications. Imagine making the same argument about the value of Blue Sky's research all day, every day, when even your success stories are measured against how many nurses or teachers we could have had instead. Hi there, it's Debbie from the team, and I'm here to tell you about an exciting new event we have coming up early next year. Higher education can be tricky to navigate. There's loads of different sector organisations and representative bodies with multiple policy agendas, and half the time they all sound like they're speaking a different language. At Making Sense of Higher Education, on the 14th of February in London, we'll take you on a team wonky guided tour of higher education. We'll be diving deep into the history, culture and politics of our sector, and equipping you with the insight and tools you need to navigate the jobby waters of life in universities. Because the more we understand about where we've come from and where we are, the better the decisions we'll make about where we should go. And we think everyone in higher education should be part of that conversation. So, whether you're early in your higher education career, taking on a new role in responsibilities, or even joining a university board of governors, join us for Making Sense of Higher Education in February. To find out more, go to www.wonky.com forward slash events. Now, next, just before Christmas, the University and College Union published a report on sexual harassment and misconduct. Sunday, what did we learn? The research found that um, of those surveyed, so this is unionised members of staff, um, that people in precarious employment, PGRs, disabled staff, trans and non-binary staff, and those whose um, sexual orientation is not heterosexual were more likely to experience uh, sexual violence. And the UCU basically recommended um, to do away with NDAs, which is uh, non-disclosure agreements, um, to let survivors know the outcome of their complaints which is not currently practiced across the sector um, and to recognize that casualization is a contributing factor to gender-based violence um, there is a lot to unpack here i think the N- nda um, recommendation and disclosing the outcome of complaints is fantastic and i think to her credit um joe uh, Grady, who is the general secretary of UCU, um, has also um, sort of outwardly said that they need to address sexual violence within the union as well, um, which is a really sort of bold and brave statement to be making. Um, I think that she is in a really, really difficult position um, here, as um, we've discussed on the site, in that obviously a union is there to act in um in the interest of its members and sometimes those members are perpetrators of sexual violence who are being hauled up by their employer um, and that does put the union in a difficult a difficult position. Um, I think there was part of the report was saying that they were looking at not representing perpetrators um, which is really important um, because perpetrators are often known for abusing institutional processes um, and then yeah casualization um, came up a lot which makes sense because it fits in with the overall aims of the union but I do think we need to be careful not to use sexual violence to further political agendas um, but address sexual violence in and of itself because it is a state of vulnerability casualization in so much as it does intersect with sexual violence just like being disabled just like being LGBT which the report notes but casualization was featured a lot more prominently than any of these other states of vulnerability so I do think we need to be careful there. Sean this was a uh... It's actually quite a bold move for uh, UCU historically, isn't it? Um, I'm delighted to see this, actually. I think as um, the, the extent of sexual violence on, on campus 
um, globally. There's been, you know, I think a, a real um, revelation of the extent of it in the States as well as in the UK. As it's become more obvious, I think um, the importance, you know, obviously once you know about it, you have to deal with it. So I really welcome this. Um, we've had a recent review of sexual violence at University of Northampton, and that included the Students' Union and UCU, and we've made it easier to report instances. We've provided training for, for staff, um, and we don't use non-disclosure agreements. Um, we, we did look at whether there was evidence that um, precarious employment or casualisation um, was having an impact, and we, we haven't found it. Um, um, but obviously, I think um, Sunday's absolutely right. It, you know, we need to stay aware of these things, and we absolutely need to protect our staff. And I welcome UCU's uh, position on this. Ben, the uh, the recommendations were interesting. I, I can see the dilemma that that when handling casework to do with sexual misconduct there are going to be sensitivities in all sorts of directions and, and that that requires some very careful navigation to protect uh, relevant parties and yet I also know that students feel that there's this kind of you know cloak and dagger uh, kind of behind the scenes dealing with cases they sometimes believe that that means it's not being dealt with at all they sometimes believe that means it's being dealt with you know in favor of you know another party that isn't a, a, a victim um it, it just breeds this mistrust and you know there's this kind of painful irony for me that, that we're having this discussion in the same week that you know prince andrew is trying to get out of a civil case alleging he's sexually assaulted a young woman of 17. Now, thankfully, that's been thrown out. But, but you know, we should be better than that. We should be able to find a way of um, handling this sensitive, nuanced casework in a way that doesn't erode further trust between students and, and, and you know, other parties. Sunday, the thing that strikes me most about the report, your write-up and so on, is this is this kind of underpinning theme of power differentials, you know, just how intimidating it is to make a complaint about your boss or make a complaint about an academic when it feels like you're also making a complaint about the whole university. You know, this stuff is mm. this stuff is all shot through with this this these questions about power, isn't it? A hundred percent. I think the thing is with one of the things that I do not think that HR departments, that student complaints, um like people who work in student complaints understand is that when a staff member when a student has lost trust in a staff member that staff member represents the university so they're going to find it incredibly difficult to approach the institution that they are making a complaint about that is incredibly intimidating so i i don't think that the vast majority of staff student sexual misconduct comes forward anyway just because of how intimidating it is um if we and i'm sure a lot of um listeners will be aware of the Al Jazeera Degrees of Abuse report that's come out. Um, It's a podcast. I think it's a five episode podcast. And I really recommend people listen to that to to really understand just how intimidating, um, you know, well-liked and um, well-known members of academic staff can be. I think the report, like having sort of silence on the issue of staff-student relationships was disappointing and I can understand why they didn't mention it because obviously it comes back to that issue of a union acting democratically in the interests of its members and if its members interests involve shagging students then democratically you've got to follow that so obviously I do understand the sort of union processes involved here but um, evidence does indicate that um, there is a difference between how 
students view staff-student relationships and staff view staff-student relationships. So there was um, a study done, and this was 20 years ago, by the way, and obviously we have a, a much more um, in-depth understanding of power differentiation in in interpersonal relationships now and in, in, in institutions. Um, but basically, they asked staff to rate how acceptable they view staff-student relationships on a scale of one to five, one being really acceptable and it's fine, and five being completely unacceptable. And staff rated it 1.2 and students rated it 4.48. So there there is a huge difference here. And, and now UCU in the press briefing said we are only here to talk about staff we're not here to talk about students and I thought that was really disappointing because 50% of those relationships are students um local branches have publicly condemned zero tolerance staff student relationship uh policies um and I think that it, it loses faith in well it for me it weakens my faith in the union and we have to remember this is a union that often calls upon student support in industrial action and employment disputes so I actually think that there is a I, I understand that they're a staff union but I really think that they're overlooking a ethical and moral issue here um, and that's disappointing. Now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's Associate Editor, David Kernahan. Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate? The podcast segment that never gets invited to any parties anyway. The aim of this game is deceptively simple. We take two provider-level datasets and see if they have a statistical relationship, which means we're looking for an R squared of at least 0.5 at P is greater than 0.0001. In layman's terms, if you do better or worse on one value, would you correspondingly expect to do better or worse on the other? This time we're looking at the Provider OFS Proceed score, which some claim is the likelihood of a student entering a course and going on to a high-quality graduate destination, and we're examining this against the provider's proportion of students who attended state school. So, does recruiting more posh kids improve your Proceed score? Does it correlate? Um, I mean, I'm inclined to think that being um, posh does improve your Proceed score in terms of retention um, and going on to... um, employment rated as high quality uh, by this but it's a very small percentage of, of the overall number so i'm going to go with i'm going to go with no because it wouldn't be interesting would it i do think that sadly recruiting more posh kids will improve your graduate outcomes and, and, and subsequently destinations uh, whether that's actually a reflection on the institution or indeed the students themselves uh, you know I, 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 or I society <laughs> yeah exactly yeah if you look at the graph on the site, just go to the podcast page, you'll find it. R squared is 0.469. So it doesn't correlate by the rules of the game, but it's close enough to make us hope nobody ever attempts to use Proceed in any kind of serious regulatory context. Proceed is an England-only variable, so this is an England-only plot. I've excluded providers without the score and without data on state school attendance. And where the data doesn't exist... I've not plotted it. And finally, last week we got a glimpse of what the National Student Survey might look like in 2023. Ben, what does the future hold? Um, uh, okay, so last week it was the, the OFS published these two alternative sets of possible new uh, NSS National Student Survey questions. It follows on from their review of the survey and they're looking at uh, possible questions to do to be deployed that will be implemented following further piloting this time next year. 
Um, and th there's a certain amount of head scratching as, as these kind of draft questions weren't actually accompanied by any kind of uh, rationale or notes or paper setting out the, the proposals really and where they've come from. Um, I may well be able to guess the rationale for the proposal to include a new question on free speech, uh, but the rationale for some of the other changes... It's like an episode of Columbo. Yeah, but, but the rationale for some of the other changes feel, feel a bit more elusive. And, you know, certainly when I talked to some of my colleagues in students' unions across the sector, they were really disappointed to see that questions on whether students feel part of a community were, were, were seem to be disappearing. Uh, students' unions rightly feel that they've done lots to contribute to that space through their community building work, through their clubs, through their societies, their course reps. You know, that community building is what we do. Uh, we also think it's really important. It supports well-being and retention and attainment. And, and somebody in no FS, presumably, for some reason, which no one's choosing to share with us, has decided that's not that important. Um, I did wonder whether if they're, you know, if they're considering new questions, whether they might want to uh, consider adding in a question that says, overall, are you content that the Office for Students has had an important impact on your experience? <laughs> but sadly, that's not in there. So, so, you know, there are, it creates more questions in my mind about, about you know, what, what, where do these important Neither agree measures, nor disagree. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Where do these important measures, you know, presumably Presumably, this is us trying to choose what is important for the success of universities. And, and I just don't see you know, where these arbitrary decisions have come from. Yeah. Sean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because on, on one level, you know, you've got, there are important changes that you can make to the kind of wording of questions to improve un understanding of them and update them over time. But on another level, when you, when you kind of scrape your eyes through the questions in the NSS, they sort of represent the universal experience of being on a taught programme. And, and I'm not sure whether the two revisions kind of cut that muster, do you? Well, it, it, they, it, they do look like they're, as Ben said, you know, kind of fiddling without, you, you can't really determine the rationale for it. And I, I agree. I would like to see um, community and student voice in there as two of the you know, major um, areas that if you want to improve student retention, improve student success, um, improve student happiness and, and mental health and well-being, um, listening to students and building community are two of the key things we should do. So I, I also um, regret any um, attempt to take those questions out of the survey. The, the, just to say, I I'm, I'm no fan of the survey used um, for league table purposes. But I think it is an absolutely great data set. And it is something that we need to use um, in, in universities for long-term planning, not, not just an annual reactive, um, you know, frantic cycle of, you know, the NSS says this, what are we going to do over the next six months? But long-term planning, what do our students say? What do they tell us? Um, and how can we use the survey to build improvements? And um, for those reasons, I, I would really like to see community um, retained in the survey. Sunday, to what extent do you agree with the following question? You are content with the proposed changes. <laughs> um, like Sean, I do think that the survey has got benefits in, in, in sharpening focus around improvements. And, um, you know, I, I can't even count on two hands the amount of working groups I sat on after various national student surveys results came out. But, um, yeah, I do think that um, actually harking back a little bit to the research that I mentioned earlier um, you know things like relatedness and autonomy are all things that come out of community and student voice and again it, it, it speaks to a naivety around the holistic ways in which institutions support students to succeed by, um, by not making them a priority. Mm, interesting. Now Ben um, I, I've, I, I, over Christmas, I uh, found my sound effect archive. So uh, at this point, I'm going to edit in a harp sound. 
uh, because if I could wave a magic wand, I would have more qual questions that were then nationally analysed so that we know why students are scoring the way they are scoring. So let me put it to you three. Let's start with you, Ben. If you had a magic wand, what would happen to the NSS in 2023? I'm not ready to bin it yet. (laughs) Um, I would refocus it more, not less onto questions about student community and student voice. Can I wish for a really great NSS outcome for the university? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, okay, fine. Sunday. Well, I mean, this, uh, I, uh, yeah, I'm glad you said magic wand because this is incredibly resource intensive, but I would definitely say um, more of a qualitative um, aspect to it. Um, and that's just from my own experience of doing research where, uh, you know, you do an initial survey for participants and you're like, yeah, they think this, they think that. And then when you actually sit down and read diary entries or have a conversation with students, uh I hope this makes sense, this next bit, but the things that they think they're talking about are not always what they're talking about, yeah. if that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, qualitative, um, co- yeah, like a, a qualitative angle would be would be great, yeah. or can, more qualitative. Can, can I back that up, Sunday? Because I, I, I was really interested when I saw Jim's point about why don't we get that national overview of student comments? And I thought, in my experience of, of reading the comments, there is that interpretive process where you think, well, so what's really going on here? Um, so I think looking at the comments to understand what's going on would be interesting. I'm not sure looking at the data set itself would give you an, an immediate view on what's happening. But I, I absolutely agree that there's a process of, of looking at them to try and understand what what's driving um, ultimately student experience and, I, and I success. Think, I, I mean, that that is such a powerful point. We, we don't we don't elect students to go and sit on university committees and, 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 and apply a, meri- a numerical score. We, 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 we ask them to turn up and talk about their lives and their experiences and share the experiences of others. Except that um, year you had Tom Scott as president. You? <laughs> you know. yeah, at, um, at, at, but, you know, it, I'm, I'm, I really don't think we'd achieve a huge amount in our, in our student representative work if we just turned up and said three out of five every single meeting. <laughs> you could take paddles. We could supply them all with paddles. You, like- know, you know, the really interesting... Um, Something really interesting that came out of my work in the strategy team um, that I was working in last year is that students were saying that they really appreciated the career zone in, and they were saying, yeah, it's great, it's fantastic. Students that hadn't yet graduated and weren't in graduate employment yet. And then when I spoke to the students, they were like, oh, I don't know what job I'm going into, but it was just really nice to have someone listen to me and understand my motivations for being at university and where I want to go. So I felt like I belonged here more. Now that that is nothing to do with graduate employment, but it is to do with how students are feeling with retention um with attainment if, if you believe the research if, well if you listen to the research so yeah there is definitely an uh, there's definitely a benefit to to listening to what students are are saying and and interpreting it in 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 ways that quantitative data can't can't show us So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Sean, Ben, Sunday, DK, everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky. Even on a budget, 
Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.